Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text today, found in Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 through 39. <clears throat> This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. We may look at tyranny and persecution from a civil government as being the greatest threat to the growth uh, of the kingdom of Christ. No doubt the hatred and contempt, uh, the violence of nations that is brought against Jesus Christ and against his truth is certainly great in forbidding public worship, in censoring public expressions of God's word and God's truth, in establishing wicked laws that threaten faithful pastors from preaching. And yet, dear ones, in such persecuting nations that practice these things, that civil magistrates that practice these forms of persecution. The kingdom of Christ is often not destroyed, but rather greatly purified and grows of even greater concern than violent persecution to the purity of Christ's kingdom is the influence that a worldly culture has upon God's people. When Christ's kingdom is not necessarily attacked with violence, but is compromised with all manner of toleration of religion, so that Jesus is just one God among many in the pantheon of gods of that nation. And when God's people become lazy, in holding firm the biblical truth of Jesus Christ rather than, and rather slowly, gradually give up those biblical attainments in order to get along with other churches, in order to get along with other religious bodies and 
in order to get along with the worldly culture all around them. Then worldly culture is likely more dangerous of an enemy than violent persecution. Both of these enemies, cultural influence and tyranny, were evident in the Greek Empire and used against God's people. But the Lord, as he always is, was ever faithful to preserve his remnant in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. The main points from our sermon this Lord's Day are the following. First of all, the origin of ancient Greece. Second, the worldwide conquest of Greece. And third, the division and end of Greece's power. So first of all, the origin of ancient Greece. By way of review, we continue in our study of the kingdoms that are represented in this image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we focus our attention today upon the third image, or the third kingdom, uh, the kingdom of brass within that image, which is Greece. So far we have considered the kingdom of Babylon, which was the head of gold in the image. And we considered also the kingdom of Medo-Persia, that kingdom that is depicted in the image with arms and chest of silver. Both of these kingdoms that we've already looked at uh, have a history that is directly recorded in scripture because of their connection to God's people before the last book of the Old Testament was recorded, namely Malachi in about 400 BC. But the connection of the next kingdom to God's people, namely Greece, which is the belly and thighs of brass, uh, the connection of that kingdom to God's people does not occur before Malachi, before the closing of the uh, Old Testament scriptures, but rather occurs in what are called the silent years, that is the intertestamental period after Malachi and before the birth of Jesus Christ. As we shall see, however, there is clear prophecy that tells us of this Grecian empire and its ambitious young leader, Alexander. But the fulfillment of these prophecies that are mentioned in Daniel uh, do not occur until after Malachi. And so we look for the fulfillment of these prophecies uh, in history, in other historical accounts, and, and we do have those available for us to consider. Just as we saw last week that God identified King Cyrus, king of, first king of the 
new Persian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, identified him by name of approximately 150 years before he set God's people free from Babylonian captivity. We noted the, his name mentioned in Isaiah 44, verses 26 through 28, and in Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 6. So he, that is the Lord, here prophesies, gives to us very clearly prophecy uh, and information and knowledge concerning the kingdom of Greece, Alexander the Great, and the division of his once mighty kingdom into four parts after his death and out of one of those four kingdoms a little horn arising and so we want to briefly touch on the his history of the Grecian Empire as we consider these three main points today uh, you see prophecy confirms the inspiration of scripture uh, we have greater degree of, of uh, assurance as we begin to see in the Word of God prophetic events and we see the realization in history that this is not a, a mere ordinary common book written by mere men. This is an inspired book. And the Lord encourages our faith. He's trustworthy. He encourages us to trust him, not only in prophetic portions of his word that they're going to come true, but if we believe and see that to be the case, then we need to trust him in all of scripture, to rely upon him in all that is written, in his promises that he has given to us, in his commandments, in his warnings, To believe and trust him and to rest in him. It is indeed God's word as the fulfillment of even these prophecies further confirms. From where did the kingdom of Greece originate? Well, it had its origin from a grandson of Noah, Javan. In Genesis 10, 1 through 2, now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Let's see, I didn't quote verse 2, so bear with me as I look up verse 2 here. And the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Teres. Javan is the same word translated uh, in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word that is translated into English um, as Grisha or as Greece. For example, in Daniel 8.21, in Daniel 10.20, and in Daniel 11, 2, 
uh, it's the same word. Uh, we could read that the son of Japhath, rather than saying Javan, that the son of Aphath, or the son of Japhath was Greece. After the confusion of languages, uh, as we considered that portion of God's word a couple Lord's Days back in Genesis 11, which was approximately about 2200 B.C., Javan and his descendants journeyed west from the Tower of Babel uh, to the island of Crete and to other settlements on both the east and on the west side of the Aegean Sea. These were likely the first Europeans coming from Javan. These people perpetuated the idolatry uh, which they had been practicing in Babel, changing their supreme god from the Babylonian Marduk to Zeus. Ancient Greece was not a united kingdom, but was rather a, a collection of, of many autonomous city-states with independent government that had formed military and economic alliances with other city-states uh, within the area that we now know as Greece. And they did so formed those alliances in fighting against the mighty Persian Empire. Together, the city-states repelled the attacks of the Persian Empire. King Darius was defeated at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. King Xerxes of the Persians or Ahasuerus of uh, Esther, the king at the time of Esther, was defeated at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. It was Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander, that defeated the Greek city-states and brought them into one kingdom by the time of his death in 336 BC. Philip prepared the way for the great king of Greece that is found in the prophecies of Daniel, namely Alexander. Which brings us now to the second main point, the worldwide conquest of Greece. The prophecies of the kingdom of Greece in the book of Daniel begin with the worldwide conquests of Alexander, who was born in 356 BC and died in 323 BC. He was not quite 33, he was not yet 33 years of age, just shy of being 33 years of age when he died. Uh, Alexander was tutored by the renowned philosopher uh, Aristotle and was just 20 years old when his father was assassinated 
leaving the kingdom of Greece uh, to his 20-year-old son. By the age of 30, Alexander had the largest empire in history up to that point in time and was undefeated in battle, never lost a battle. He died writhing in pain, likely poisoned in 323 BC in the palace, interestingly, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar uh, in Babylon which he had planned to establish as his empire's capital to restore Babylon to its uh, past greatness and glory. Now, as we begin to look at some of the passages in Daniel, we begin with Daniel chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, and we'll look at some other passages briefly that speak of the kingdom of Greece and of Alexander and what happened to Alexander's kingdom. Uh, we'll be doing a very brief overview of, of some of these verses because once we get to them in the book of Daniel, we'll spend much more time on these verses. But I want to give you just a quick overview of the place of Greece in biblical prophecy and the fulfillment in history of those prophecies. So again, in Daniel 2, verses 38 through 39, beginning at the very end of verse 38, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar concerning the image of this uh, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had within his dream and Daniel says, Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. That was the Medo-Persian Empire. Now we come to the third, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Again, realize these prophecies are given uh, hundreds of years before their fulfillment. Uh, this is not uh, a sleight of hand in being able to take prophecies uh, and uh, to have the fulfillment of these prophecies apart from God's omniscience, apart from God's knowledge, apart from this being the inspired word of God. This mighty kingdom in the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream has a belly and thighs of brass that is bronze according to verse 32. It was the kingdom of Greece that defeated and succeeded the kingdom of Medo-Persia by 333 BC. Daniel here interprets this third kingdom of Greece to be one, quote, which shall bear rule over all the earth, end of quote, verse 39. That is, a kingdom that would rule the known world at that time, which was certainly realized under 
the rule and reign of Alexander the Great. Flip back uh, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we have another accounting of these four kingdoms, but not in a, a human image, but by way of four different beasts which represent the same four kingdoms. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 6. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. This is the kingdom of Babylon that is first mentioned as a lion with eagle's wings that spread its kingdom uh, throughout uh, uh, Mesopotamia down uh, into uh, what is now Israel down to Egypt as well and the ferocity of the lion it appears as the kingdom proceeds under different kings becomes less and less and be so the lion like ferocity becomes more tame and not as ferocious it's depicted by uh, it standing on its feet like a man being given a heart of a man and it would seem to be that it, it becomes ta more tame uh, it's gradually dwindling in its authority and power as, as it goes along doesn't have the wings are plucked uh, taken out and, and becomes more like a man rather than like a lion then in the next verse <clears throat> verse 5 and behold another beast a second like to a bear and it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. This represents, this beast represents Medo-Persia. Uh, the three ribs in the mouth would represent three kingdoms that it had taken. Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And notice that one side, it's raised up higher on one side than the other. That simply refers to uh, the greater elevation of Persia over Media in the Medo-Persian Empire. That Persia had the stronger and the higher, more elevated uh, rule in the kingdom. 
continuing on now to that which interests us from the third kingdom. And after this I beheld and lo another like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads and dominion was given to it. We'll be talking uh, in, later on in the sermon about the four heads, but for, for right now we're just focused upon uh, just the beast uh, as it had four wings like a fowl uh, and uh, was one that uh, swiftly overcame. And uh, again, the speed with which uh, Alexander was able to conquer the, the known world at that time is legendary. And this speaks again uh, of that dominion and the speed in which he did gain that dominion. Turn with me back a, 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 or forward a chapter to Daniel 8.38. I'm sorry, Daniel 8, 3 through 8. Daniel 8, 3 through 8. In this particular dream of Daniel, there is related this conflict uh, between these, these two animals. Uh, a conflict between a ram that had two horns, verse 3. Uh, one of the horns was higher than the other. Uh, this is the kingdom of Medo-Persia, Persia being the elevated kingdom. And uh, verse 4 says, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. <coughs> verse 5, And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west, on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes I'll stop there this is again the Grecian Empire uh, it's flying its feet aren't even touching the ground and it has a notable horn um, namely Alexander uh, the Great Verse 6, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power, and I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. There was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. So we'll stop there for now. I think the interpretation in light of what we've already said is pretty clear. That in fact, uh, Greece uh, did subdue 
uh, the ram with the two horns, Medo-Persia, and uh, the notable horn, Alexander, uh, did exercise power over the whole world, and that uh, uh, when that strong dominion had, had been reached, the great horn was broken. Um, again, as we've already noted, Alexander died. He was likely poisoned, uh, suffered excruciating pain um, in uh, his final days. <clears throat> verses 20, same chapter, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, uh, is given the interpretation. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, that is four horns came in the place of the one notable horn, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power, not having the same power as did uh, the notable horn, or Alexander. But notice again, Grisha, um, Javan, uh, is, is the word there. Um, the, the same Hebrew word is used for Grisha, Greece, in other places uh, in the Old Testament. And so that's the word that goes back to the grandson of Noah. There's one other reference uh, to Grisha, and that's in Daniel 11.2. I won't go there. You can look at that on your own. I just wanted to note that there is one other reference to Grisha uh, in uh, uh, the book of Daniel, Javan. The Jewish historian Josephus gives an account of Alexander's entry uh, into Jerusalem in his Antiquity of the Jews, uh, book 11, chapter 8 in which he relates when Alexander was approaching Jerusalem and the priests and the high priests came out in their linen garments and in the colorful uh, portion of the high priest's robes and that Alexander in beholding them coming to him to greet him recalled a dream that he had in which he had in the dream seen these very people, these priests and the high priest coming to greet him uh, in his dream. And the God of those priests and of that high priest in the dream told him, according to, according to Alexander, this is what he related, told him that he would conquer Persia, that he would conquer Persia. It's kind of similar to what God gave by way of a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, 
by way of future events that would fall, a, a, a heathen king. So likewise it appears, though it's not recorded in scripture, so it's again not something perhaps that we can say uh, happened with absolute certainty as we can with what was revealed in Jan Daniel chapter two by way of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nevertheless, uh, uh, this is what is related by the Jewish historian Josephus. This had uh, quite an impact upon Alexander in which he uh, bestowed great favor upon the Jews. And he entered into Jerusalem. He performed certain rituals uh, with the high priest in attendance, performed certain rituals by way of sacrificial rituals. And this, again, became uh, an indication to Alexander, at least, uh, that, uh, that this was uh, the God that had appeared to him or spoken to him in the dream. In God's great providence, it was Alexander's worldwide dominion that took the Greek language to the known world at that time. Like English is today, the Greek language became the common language throughout the vast empire, the Greek empire and subsequently even the Roman empire. Latin was spoken uh, more locally within Rome and, and in certain um, legal documents of that, but the common language of the people throughout the empire was, even if they had a first language, a native language, the common language was Greek throughout the empire. And that's true during the time of Christ. So Jesus Christ um, uh, and the apostles uh, spoke fluent Greek. Uh, they not only uh, spoke the, uh, the language uh, of Aramaic that was spoken in that part of the, of the world and Hebrew, but they also spoke Greek. It became the language into which the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures was translated. It's called the Septuagint. Septuagint refers to 70, 70 Jewish translators that translated the Hebrew scriptures into the language of, of Greek, the common language. That was the Bible that was actually used um, outside of Israel amongst the Jews. They used the, the Septuagint. That was their Bible. That was the Bible that, that was used by the apostles as they went to preach throughout the Greek world was the Greek Septuagint scriptures, which became a reality because of the 
worldwide conquest of Alexander the Great. There was a common language. God in his providence was preparing the world and taking the gospel through this vain, ambitious world ruler, Alexander. There are more citations in the New Testament, which incidentally was written uh, in Greek as well, but there are more citations in the New Testament uh, from the Septuagint, when quoting from the Old Testament, there are more citations from the Greek Septuagint than from the, the Hebrew scriptures. This gives a little bit of an indication of the magnitude of, of uh, blessing that the Greek language was in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world. You see, this teaches us that all leaders serve God's purposes. And that was perhaps the greatest purpose of Alexander in conquering all the world was to prepare the world for a language in which the gospel of Jesus Christ could be taken. That many could come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. One application that I would make before passing on to the last main point. Alexander wanted to gain the whole world that was his ambition, to gain the whole world. There are various accounts that indicate at the beginning of his reign that he was told that there are many, many kingdoms out there, and he wept because at that point he had not conquered any himself, but that was his amb ambition, was to conquer, was to overtake uh, the kingdoms of this world very ambitious soul. But what we learn, I think, from Alexander is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? 32 years of age. He wasn't planning his death. And yet he died. All of his ambitions crumbled. All of his glory faded away. Yeah, we still know of Alexander. But the glory of Alexander has passed away. But the glory of Jesus Christ continues forever and ever. Let us not make the choice and the decision that Alexander did he was confronted with the true religion, but he did not bow the knee. He did not disown his gods. He did not follow the one true living God. It was just, again, one God, maybe the chief God now, among his pantheon of gods. The third and last point 
the division and end of Greece's power. This is the final phase of the Third Kingdom of Greece. After the death of Alexander, his vast kingdom was divided into four dominions, four kingdoms. Uh, under the rule of Macedon and Greece uh, was, was, uh, um, was Antipater and Cassander were the two rulers over those territories. Second, under uh, the rule of Thrace in Asia Minor was Lysimachus. That's the second division of territory of Alexander's empire. Third, Syria, which Seleucus the first was the ruler, and then the fourth was rule over Egypt. Ptolemy the first ruled over Egypt. This period of Greek history began with the death of Alexander in 323 BC and continued until the Roman general Pompey subdued Syria under Roman rule in 63 BC. So now, again, we want to go back just very quickly and look at the references in the book of Daniel to this division of Alexander's empire into these four kingdoms. Daniel 7, 6, we read, After this I beheld and lo another like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads and dominion was given to it. So four heads represent four kingdoms. So there's a reference to the division after Alexander in chapter 8 of Daniel verses 8 through 12. Therefore the he-goat, this is talking about uh, the kingdom of Greece under Alexander. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn, Alexander, was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, We'll talk about that in a moment. Came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down, and an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. This uh, portion of Daniel, very 
quickly, very briefly, speaks of the four kingdoms that, the four heads that come from this great notable horn. And out of one of those kingdoms arises a little horn. Uh, this is the kingdom of Syria, and the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, becomes uh, the arch enemy of God's people uh, in, during the revolt of the Maccabees uh, against his tyranny, his persecution, his hatred of God and of uh, God's people. He indeed, as it says here in Daniel, he takes away the daily sacrifice. He caused the offering and the sacrifices to cease for a period of time. We'll, as I said, become much more specific in looking at these things when we get to this portion of Daniel 8. But for now, just giving this brief overview. And uh, he defiled uh, the, the sanctuary uh, by, by way of offering swine upon the brazen altar as well. He cast down, cast down the host. That is, uh, he persecuted God's people, cast the stars to the ground. He stamped upon them. He magnified himself. That's why, again, Epiphanes um, means, again, manifest one. Uh, so, you know, he magnified himself, he manifested himself, Antiochus Epiphanes. In Daniel 11, 4, one other reference, we read, concerning this mighty king, namely Alexander in, in verse four, and when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So he doesn't pass it along to his own posterity as it says here in verse four, but it's divided uh, again amongst these four, uh, the four winds uh, or the, these four uh, generals, commanders of, of uh, Alexander. The rest of Daniel 11, after verse five and uh, to the end of the chapter, relates in very great detail the constant wars between the kingdom of the south, namely Egypt, and the kingdom of the north, uh, namely Syria, with Judea right sandwiched right in between, and them being caught, tossed to and fro by the kingdom that ruled at that particular period of time, and then it was continually exchanging hands. Antiochus uh, 
really was a, a forerunner uh, to tyrants and persecutors of God's people like Nero and Domitian and the papal antichrist, who is also called in Daniel, uh, we'll see, and another one of Daniel's dreams uh, is called the little horn, the little horn. And so there are two little horns, one is the papal antichrist, the other uh, is Antiochus. And there are uh, certain similarities uh, that they both have by way of hostility, persecution um, uh, against God's people, uh, seeking to usurp God's authority. So we will look further at that as we come to those portions of Daniel. The war, and I want to just say just briefly here, the war of Antiochus against God's people uh, began with seeking to influence the Jews to tolerate Greek culture and Greek religion. And many of those in Judea did seek to follow. There was that quite a following in departing from the faith in compromising their faith and following Antiochus by way of mi mixing their religion, their, their pure uh, religion with that of the Greek religion and the Greek culture. When this uh, method did not bring about the desired results as quickly as Antiochus uh, desired, he eventually issued very deadly threats against those who would not conform. He erected an altar, as I said, to Zeus in the temple, sacrificed wine, a swine upon the brazen altar, uh, prohibited Sabbath-keeping, prohibited circumcision, sought to destroy the scriptures, and sought to destroy the faithful. One of the faithful was a priest by the name of Mattathias, who together with his seven sons refused to worship the Greek gods and rebelled against Antiochus. They led the Jewish people to independence from Syrian domination uh, in the, the war, the Maccabees, 167 to 165. They overcame uh, the greater power, the mightier power of Syria. And that's the history that is covered in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. 1st uh, and 2nd Maccabees uh, are not a part of the inspired canon of scripture, uh, but they are nevertheless uh, history uh, to which we can look and as credible history as, as any uh, you know, uh, man authored or written history that we might read credible history, but, but never a part of the Hebrew scriptures. Yet they provide uh, the history uh, of the struggle uh, of God's people during the silent years against the tyranny and persecution toward the end of the Greek empire. After it was taken from Alexander, after the division into the four kingdoms, after the uh, 
a rising of the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes. The Syrians, as I said, first sought to culturally condition uh, God's people to accept, for example, the nudity of the young men uh, who performed in athletic events in the gymnasium and stadiums. Uh, that was, uh, again, a way of introducing, uh, certainly immorality, performing uh, uh, all of their athletic events uh, in the nude. At first, the message uh, was one of assimilation and toleration of the Greek gods and of their immorality. Many, as I said, Jews fell into the trap, but when it became clear that the faithful would not follow in such toleration, laws were eventually instituted to prohibit the practice of worship with deadly consequences. This is a warning to us all as, as I close today. Compromise and toleration of worldly practices, of immorality, of blasphemy, of false religions for the sake of unity and peace and getting along together will eventually lead to persecution of the faithful who will not conform who will not bow the knee. Dear ones, we will be called troublemakers. We'll be called haters. We'll be called dividers. Self-righteous hypocrites, separatists, because we stand for Christ and for his truth as found in scripture and will not be moved from it. I ask you, what are you willing to give up, to follow Jesus? Are you willing simply to give up a few minutes of your time here and there? Is that what you're willing to give up for Jesus? Are you willing to give up your life, your life for Jesus? Is Jesus your Savior and your Lord? You see, you cannot pick and choose which part of Jesus you want. I want him as Savior, but I don't want him as Lord of my life. You cannot pick and choose what you like about Jesus. His mercy, but not his holiness. His love, but not his righteousness. This commandment, I like that commandment, but not this commandment. We can't pick and choose. We follow Jesus in his entirety in all that he is, or we don't follow him at all. We should, again, not make pretense. If we're not going to follow Jesus as Lord, then let's not pretend to follow him at all. If Jesus is your Savior in whom you are trusting, dear ones, he must be your Lord to whom you are submitting. Your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior is in fact evidenced. Evidenced by your loving submission and obedience to him as Lord and to his commandments as his words as Lord. Dear ones, 
life is too short. As Alexander the Great came to realize, life is too short. Shorter for some of us than for others of us. But nevertheless, here, how many times do we see news reports how many young people are dying? Not just the elderly, but how many young people? Alexander offered a sacrifice to God, but he did not trust alone in the Lord. He did not bow the knee to him. He did not cast away his other gods, his other loves, the things that he wanted in this world. He did not place them under the authority of Christ. And his life came crashing suddenly to an end. And we might say from Matthew 7, and great was his fall. Great was his fall because he had been given even a dream, if that is accurate and if that's true, he had been given a dream by God. And he, as well, was given some instruction by the priests in the knowledge of the true religion. But all for nothing, great was his fall. Let that not be true of you. Let not your fall be great. Let your fall not be at all. You stand only by Jesus Christ upholding you, trusting in him, trusting in his death and his resurrection for you, trusting him as Savior to save you from your sins and as Lord to rule over your life. Trust Christ now and bow before him. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank thee for thy word. Thy word is truth. We ask our Lord that, that thou would help us to learn, even in this brief overview of the Grecian kingdom, many lessons to take to heart, to see how our God reigns and even rules and causing a language, a common language to be brought to the ends of the earth that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be published in that language and preached in that language. This was not Alexander's intention, but it was thy purpose. And we see how thou dost use even the wicked to accomplish thy purposes. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before thee. Thou art the mighty God. We thank thee, Father, for these prophecies, for they do assure us again and again uh, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Lord, we pray that thou would, would uh, give to us love for thee following and walking in thy path 
and walking, Lord, after those who walk after Christ. Hear our prayers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.